Welcome to Living Through the Word, the podcast ministry of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. I'm Julian Dobbs, the Diocesan Bishop, and it's my great privilege to be welcomed by one of our ministers who's going to be a regular contributor to the podcast when we talk about doctrine and various other matters, the Reverend Dr. Jim Saladin. Uh, Jim, great to have you with us. Thank you, Bishop. It's great to be here. Uh, what does it mean that you're the Reverend Doctor? Just tell us a little bit about that. Oh, dear. Um, well, uh, the Reverend means um, I'm a pastor, I'm ordained, and the Doctor means um, that I got a PhD, which is a very silly thing to do in many respects. But um, strangely enough, the University of uh, St. Andrews in Scotland uh, let me out with, uh, with a PhD. So that was well, a- that's that's very impressive, Jim. Uh, very impressive indeed. More impressive than that is uh, your spectacular wife, your two boys, and that you pastor a church in New York City. Tell us all about that. Oh well, um, actually, yesterday was my uh, wife and I's anniversary. So twenty years ago, yesterday, uh, Amber agreed to marry me. Well, she did marry me, which was amazing. Um, um, can't believe that she did that, but I'm so grateful that she did. Um, she's, I married up. She's awesome. And um, the Lord gave us two boys, Caleb and Peter. And, um, and we live here in New York City. And uh, we look after Emmanuel Anglican Church, which meets in the West Village uh, here in Manhattan. And it's just a, a privilege to um, be able to serve that congregation. It's, it's full of, of people who love Jesus and are seeking to follow him as disciples in a, in a wonderful, wonderful city, great city. Uh, and, and, and some people who are just trying to figure out whether or not Jesus is a good idea. So it's a privilege to, to serve them both. Well, congratulations on 20 years of marriage to you and Amber. That's fantastic. Maybe one time we can talk about marriage and think a little bit about that. But today, we're going to talk about baptism, and particularly we're going to think about infant baptism. Uh, on December the 8th, 1968, I was baptized in water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, no doubt it was a spectacular event. Uh, the liturgy of the church was used. What makes it slightly controversial is that I was less than three months old, baptized as a child, as an infant, to believing parents in a little church called St. Peter's on the Hill, which no longer exists uh, in Auckland, New Zealand. Christian baptism uh, can be a thorny subject. It seems to be getting thornier, in fact, all the time. And there have been always be people who have been baptized, who show no sign of spiritual life and Christian commitment. And this creates a real problem when we consider baptism. And in reaction to this, there are Christians, perhaps their numbers are on the increase, I don't know, who have turned their back on baptism uh, and regard it as an optional extra uh, that you uh, have or do not have as part of your Christian life. And then there are many other Christians who are dissatisfied with infant baptism and simply can't get themselves from the scriptures to the place uh, where infants should in any way be baptized in, in the church. So, uh, Jim, let, let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about uh, the sacrament of baptism. Sacrament might be a, a strange word for some of us listening to the podcast. So um, what is a sacrament? How many of them are there? Why are they important? Oh, um, 
Yeah, uh, there are classically two sacraments of the gospel. I'm thinking about the um, the Catechism of our Church uh, in the um, in the old prayer book. It says uh, there are two sacraments generally necessary: uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I think one of the ways you think about the sacraments, well, the, just the way they're they're described in the in the in the Catechism, is that they are an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, um, and they baptism and the Lord's Supper, they, they both of them signify um, the, just the deepest cause of our salvation. The, the, the root of our salvation, the foundation of our salvation is, is union with Christ. And both baptism and the Lord's Supper, in some different ways, signify that union with Christ uh, and, and the, the, just the glorious benefit of uh, God giving himself to us in the person of Christ and in, and in his spirit. Yeah, and so one of those sacraments, as you mentioned, obviously, is what we call initiation, the baptism uh, in water. Uh, you've baptized some people recently. Uh, have you baptized infants as as well as uh, faith-confessing adults? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, baptism is it's just one of my favorite things. I it, it, One of the greatest gifts, um, privileges, maybe, of being a pastor is being able to baptize people. Um, and uh, just a few weeks ago, we baptized... Uh, a gentleman in his early 20s uh, who, you know, I don't know, nine months ago had really no Christian identity, no knowledge uh, of Christ, no trust in Christ in any it, it, at all. And, um, and, and the Lord drew him over these last few months and drew him to Emmanuel. And he's been kind of working through who is Jesus and, and then came to a place where he wanted to surrender his life fully to Christ. And and so we got to baptize him. It's just a, a glorious thing. In a few weeks, uh, let's see, August 25th, I think, we're going to baptize um, a little girl who is, you know, um, not even crawling yet. Just a, a, a little girl with believing parents. And uh, and that's going to be a delight and a joy. I can't wait for it. So yeah, no, we, we baptize uh, adults who come to faith uh, for, who are not from believing families. And we baptize infants uh, when that's appropriate. Yeah, now let's come back to that because there, there may be a time when it's not a, appropriate to baptize an infant, and we might be able to pick that up a little bit. But I want people to understand that the baptism of infants, I, I would prefer to say the baptism of believers' children, whatever the age, Good word. Uh, is, is clearly referenced, uh, I believe, in the New Testament. Jim and I will come to some of that. It's, it's also seen in the the very early history of the church, uh, written by people like Tertullian, who lived from about AD uh, 160 to 220, uh, by about, I think, what, Jim, the middle of the fourth century, baptism was a baptism of believers' children was a, a normative part of uh, uh, Christian practice and Christian liturgy, and yet it's controversial. Uh, I don't mind saying to people that when I was ordained almost uh, 28 years ago, I asked my bishop at the time to push the pause button on my ordination as a deacon until I had seriously wrestled this concept of the baptism of believers through doctrinally and pastorally in the church. And the bishop was very gracious to me. Uh, he taught me, he, he, he walked me through this doctrine to the place where I could see not only was it very Anglican, but primarily it was very, very biblical. But Jim, would you agree that that this whole concept of baptism, especially involving children, 
can sometimes be controversial. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and I my, certainly in my background, you know, it's interesting, Bishop, that you you can um, name the the date that you were baptized. I. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember the date, but I do remember it because I was. Jim, Jim that just referenced it. My, my my memory is much better than yours. Clearly, clearly. Well, that's not surprising, is it? No, but yeah, <laughs> I don't. I actually do remember my baptism because um, I was 19 years old and I was. Uh, yes. I came to faith in a in a context that 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 didn't emphasize baptism very much at all, but but only. Uh, baptized, um, uh, what you know, what they would say, believers, um, those who had come to explicit faith, usually uh, sometime uh, in their teens, if they grew up in the church. And so I was 19 years old, and I was baptized by full immersion in a in a jacuzzi in a backyard, um, which is you know a little different context uh, than yours. But no, absolutely, it's a it's a controversial subject, and it's troubling to a lot of people. Um, but I, of course, I've come to a conviction that it is also a wonderful, wonderful gift to baptize the children of believers and one that, that, um, that corresponds with the gospel, that corresponds with the scriptures, which is the most important thing. So let, let's go to the scriptures, uh, for a moment and consider, for example, uh, Acts chapter two, uh, verse 38, the context Peter is preaching, uh, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He goes on to talk about a promise uh, to uh, children, uh, to, to those who are, are, are part of the household. We, we should pick that up in our conversation. But the normative pattern throughout the book of Acts for becoming a Christian seems to me to involve those three elements, repent, be baptized, receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that, that raises, Jim, a very important question. How could I, a little less than three months old in 1968 at St. Peter's on the Hill, repent of my sins? I was baptized. Did I receive the Holy Spirit? You'll help answer that question. But, but, why then was I baptized as an infant if I could not repent and fulfill the mandate of the Apostle Peter in his sermon? That's a wonderful question. And I think it, the the answer to it um, goes, I, I, you've gone to the exactly the right passage. You know, Acts chapter two, here's Peter. He is, um, uh, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon the disciples. This is really the beginning of uh, the church, the people of God experiencing the full benefit of the new covenant. You know, all through the Old Testament, um, you can see this in Jeremiah and many other places, there's um, this desire, not just desire, but there's this anticipation, this promise of God that uh, God's going to establish a new covenant with his people um, and that this part of this new covenant is going to be um, that the law is going to be written on our hearts, that God is going to pour out his spirit. God's going to renew us from the inside out, that religion isn't just going to be an um, outward behavior in thing, but an inward transformation out thing. And so here, Peter is in many respects saying, Israel, here it is, man. It, we're here. Look, um, the Messiah has come. You killed him, which is a real problem, but look, he rose from the dead. And right now, you, you remember that Peter is looking at the crowd 
uh, they included people who had participated in killing Jesus. He, he looks at the crowd and he says, right now, Jesus uh, has done everything necessary for your amnesty, for your pardon, for your forgiveness. But not only that, he's not only just going to forgive um, the guilt, the sin, but he's going to impart his Holy Spirit. He's going to renew you and he's going to give you the new covenant. And then he says, verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, obviously that's including, that that's that's the missionary aspect of uh, this new covenant. It's for everybody who the Lord's going to call. It's for all nations. But right before he talks about all nations, he says, this promise is for you and for your children. Now, if you're an Israelite uh, rooted in the Old Testament, that that phrase, this promise is for you and for your children, that's going to trigger something in your mind. The thing it's going to trigger in your mind is it's going to trigger uh, Genesis chapter 17, which is when Abraham receives uh, the covenant of circumcision. God uh, establishes, you remember, a covenant with Abraham. He says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a family. And through you, I'm going to bless all families. Then he gives them the sign, the outward and visible sign of this covenant, which was circumcision, all male children uh, in part of the covenant were to be circumcised. He gives the sign of circumcision to Abraham and his offspring. And he says again and again, this is for you and for your children. This is for you and for your offspring. And so when Peter is announcing the new covenant, he uses language that echoes, almost quotes, the old covenant, not in terms of, and, and the, there's continuity and discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. The continuity includes this, that, this idea that it's for you and for your children. And it's in the context of this sign, the sign of baptism, the sign of circumcision. And so classically, Christians have read this and said, well, there seems to be a, a continuity in application of the sign of the covenant, that in the same way that in the Old Testament, uh, uh, children of believing parents received the sign of the covenant, even before they came to explicit faith, so in the New Testament, uh, children of believing parents can receive the sign, should receive the sign of the covenant, even before they come to explicit faith in, in anticipation of it. Um, which brings up a lot of questions, but that's that's just a, a quick kind of overview of it. But um, Bishop, come back. Yeah, that's great, Jim. Yeah, because you, you, you've raised some very important things that I want to pick up. Uh, if you've got questions when uh, Dr. Jim Saladin and I are speaking together, you can uh, send us an email uh, to questions at adlw.org, questions at adlw.org. We'll put that in the show notes. And then we'll have a follow-up session, particularly on baptism, where we will endeavor to answer some of those questions uh, for you. So, Jim, you talk about households, you talk about families. Let's let's spend just a few moments speaking about that. Coming to mind for me is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, which speaks about instructing your child when, when he wakes, when uh, he's uh, with you during the day. The last thing before your child goes to bed, training a child, insisting on God's standards, teaching God's standards, 
bringing uh, your child, not sending your child uh, to the assembly of the church. The whole concept of a believing household is something that in many respects has come under attack in our culture today, particularly our Western culture, for those of us listening in Western countries. And and we become very centered on me and I and our individuals rather than on our collective household. Uh, Is that something you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think um, very often people in our culture, particularly in the United States, we're, we're so individualistic. And also we've, so many of us have had just terrible, uh, abusive experiences within the family. Um, or, or we don't have an intact family, you know, I mean, there's a lot of pain associated for a lot of us with our, in fact, most of us, our deepest pain, pain is associated with our family one way or the other. And therefore, um, I think it, you know, I can sympathize with those who kind of say, Hey, listen, you know, the family, family's not going to be what it's about. It's going to be about, um, uh, an individual um, uh, relationship with Christ, which of course there's truth in that. And families are not the gospel, you know, um, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not the family's going to save everything. But, but it, you mentioned Deuteronomy chapter six, and there's lots of other ones, but that's a great one. Clearly in the scripture, God designs families. His purpose for families is for them to be kind of an incubator of the gospel, an incubator of faith, a, pla- a, a place where I like to think of it as an embassy of the kingdom of God, um, a place where in this family, uh, the Lord Jesus is sovereign. The Lord Jesus and his gospel sets the tone, sets the agenda. Um, we are we're an embassy of the kingdom. And, yeah. uh, and, and I think that was the plan when God called Abraham to himself and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a family and through your family, I'm, I'm going to bless all families. Um, that that was part of God's plan from the very beginning. So here, here you have helped us understand the connection between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant and the New, the sign of the covenant. Uh, we're learning how important it is that we uh uh, embrace this understanding of the baptism of believers' children by understanding that God chose to work through households. Uh, we see that in Peter's sermon, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. We see that elsewhere in the New Testament. People often say to me, show me where it is. Show me where it is. Well, let's go to the Bible and, and take a look, for example, uh, where people were converted, they were baptized and their household with them. We see it a number of times. We read about Cornelius. He was converted. He was baptized. And we notice he was baptized with his household. So too was Lydia. She was baptized along with her household. So was the Philippian jailer. It's a fascinating account of God's miraculous bringing people to to faith. The jailer came to faith. He was baptized and his household with him. And Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, um, uh, which this this effect, I didn't baptize any of you. And then in a sense, he remembers, he said, oh, I did. Yes, I baptized Stephanus and the household of Stephanus and his household. Now, that may not implicitly mention little infants of less than three months old when I was baptized, but we can be pretty sure as we look across 
the, uh, the, the scriptures that we've mentioned already, and as Jim said, many others, that God worked through household. The faith of the head of the household, the immediate family, the extended family, the servants, and probably even the slaves, many historians say, came under the faith of the household. Jim, you, you, you talked a little bit about age. You were, what did you say, 19 years old uh, when when you were baptized? Was, and, yeah. you, and you remember that. Yep. And that, of course, is the argument from some, isn't it? Wait until they're old enough. We don't just want to get the baby done, which I think is a very bad Anglican phrase. Um, wait until they're old enough. Let them make a decision for themselves. But I would say to you, uh, uh, Jim, when then is the right age of understanding? And how do we know? Uh, does it, is it 19 when you were baptized? Is it, is it 29? Is it, is it 99? Um, what say you, Dr. Saladin? Well, I think it's I think it's um, helpful to just back up a little bit. Um, you were mentioning households, and I, I one of the things that you see, for instance, in the Old Covenant, um, is when 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 you imagine you've got a an adult who is uh, not part of the covenant. When a covenant is established, when God establishes a covenant with His people or when somebody enters the covenant who hasn't previously been, then usually what happens is faith uh, in the promises of God comes first. So Abraham believes God and it is credited to him as righteousness. And then after that, he receives he receives the sign of circumcision. So in the case of Abraham, it, it, it goes uh, Ab uh, faith, he believes God's promise, and then he receives the sign of the covenant. However, for his children then, for the next generation, uh, the, the sign comes uh, preemptively, so to speak. The sign is given to the children even before they come to explicit faith. Now, it's still, they, they still have to come to explicit faith um, in order for them to be full beneficiaries of all the promises of God uh, and, and the benefits of the covenant. But when somebody is entering the faith, it's or entering the covenant, it's faith and then sign. For their children then, however, it's sign, uh, and then faith is cultivated from the word go. And so we, we then, you know, that's just the way covenants typically work. And then you get to the New Testament, and there's, we see no indication that that pattern has changed, um, even though the benefits of the new covenant are much greater. Uh, and so we follow that same pattern. I think in my case, I was raised in a believing home. And, you know, my, my parents raised me as, in a sense, part of the church. Um, but And there was a way in which, um, I, you know, I'm very, very, well, I'm deeply grateful for the way I was raised. I was raised uh, watching the Lord transform my parents uh, and my family and as that happened, you know, it's difficult for me to know exactly when I came to faith, because for me, coming to trust in Christ was a little bit like the sun coming up on a foggy day or a, or a, or a cloudy day. I knew the sun came up. I wasn't exactly sure when the sun came over the horizon. It just all of a sudden I began, uh, you, you know, you can see everything that's around you when the sun's coming up on a cloudy day. And that's kind of what the way it was for me coming to faith. And so when I came to baptism, it was a little bit like, Man, I, I I I think I've been walking with Christ for a very long time, and so you know, it, it I needed to be baptized, 
But there's a way in which when someone is baptized as a child in a believing home, they grow, the, the ideal is that they grow up, frankly, much like I had the benefit of doing, they grow up always hearing of Christ and with Christ becoming ever more clear and their trust in Christ becoming ever more deep. And so that they look over their life and they just realize Christ has been calling them by name since they could understand their name uh, just from the very, very beginning. And that is part of God's plan from the point of Abraham onward for how uh, children of believers are to be nurtured into disciples. This episode of Living Through the Word uh, brings us almost to the end of the second month of this new podcast ministry. And we're so grateful to the Lord for his blessing of this new endeavor. Uh, we're thankful for the guests that have sat down with us so far to discuss such important issues, such as the need for GAFCON, the right to life, and today, the baptism of believers' children. We're thankful for you, the listener. The ministry is only effective if people are listening. We're blown away by the response we've received so far. So truly, from, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. The best way you can support us is to subscribe uh, to this podcast and share it with your friends. You sub can subscribe on your smartphone using Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any major podcast player. Jim, can we talk about uh, the age of understanding? I uh, recently, on one of the episodes of this uh, Living Through the Word podcast uh, interviewed Chris Fadden from the New York Right to Life. And we reminded each other uh, how the Virgin Mary, who has within her, growing within her womb, Jesus unborn inside of Mary, and she visits her old cousin, Elizabeth, who's carrying inside her womb, John, who was to become, interestingly, John the Baptist. Uh, many people listening will remember the Christmas narrative. And the Bible says that when Mary arrived, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. I've always found that so very exciting, but I'm a man. It may not be exciting uh, from a pregnant woman's perspective. But it does lend us to ask the question, how old do you have to be to begin to respond to the grace of God. It's ironic as I look at it, that the man whose very name is or would be the Baptist responds to the Holy Spirit, responds to Jesus at a younger age than anyone on record. Uh, what do you think, Jim? It's a great question. I mean, I've, our ability to respond to the grace of God is is called forth by God. What, what, what I mean by that is, um, uh, you know, take a, take a 40 year old man who's not a believer. Can that person respond to the grace of God by himself? No, he, he has to be called to life by the grace of God. God has to reach out and call him by name. Um, our, our response to God is never based upon our capacity to respond or our, our ability to respond at, from any age. It's always a fruit. Our response of faith is always a fruit of God's work on our behalf in us and through us. And so um, the Lord can call any human at any age uh, to himself and to uh, living faith 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and so we pray that the Lord, you know, I mean, I, I imagine every believing parent, regardless of what your views are about the appropriateness of baptizing babies, I, I imagine that every believing parent prays for their, for their child from the very beginning, call them, call them by name. I mean, I know I did. And I'm, I, you know, we, we need the Lord uh, to give us the ability to respond to him. And if it's all by God's grace, then God can do that uh, to a little baby just as easily as he can do to a grown man or woman. Absolutely. I mean, for me, as I read and study the Bible, uh, and, and as I wrestle these these issues through, nowhere in the Bible do I read that the grace of God is dependent on obtaining some arbitrary level of intelligence or understanding or maturity. Uh, as I read the Bible, as I study the scriptures, as I as I as I wrestle with these matters, for me, a two-year-old is old enough to be baptized. A, 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 a handicapped person is not outside the grace of God. It's not that we have to pass some, I don't know, IQ test in order to qualify. The baby who dies in infancy is not outside the grace of God. And, and surely God's to be thanked for this. Was it not Martin Luther who said, I don't have the exact quote, but something to this effect, uh, if if you want to tell me that you've got to be a certain age, you've got to obtain some certain level of understanding, he said, uh, uh, how old do you have to be? Because we've all known people, I have at 45 or 55 or 75 or 85, who who had made a decision for Christ earlier in their lives, but had fallen away. And so these these issues perplex us, but they remind us of God's initiative in our lives. And as you so beautifully pointed out, Jim, this is this is about God more so than it is uh, about us. I think that's one of the most important points about this whole conversation is um, one of the key questions that, that you have to ask is uh, when you think about the sacraments. In this in this case, baptism is baptism primarily in the first instance about something, an expression of something I do, or is it in the first insta- instance an expression of God and his promise and what he does? Now, I would argue that ultimately both have to be in view in order for you to have the full the full meal deal. But um, I like to tell my people, listen, uh, baptism signifies first and foremost God and what he has done in Christ. And then when you see that, it calls forth a response of faith in you. Um, it's not first and foremost an expression of your you saying that you've done something you know, or a decision you've made. It's not first that. If we, if we make it first about me and what I have done or a decision I've made or something like that, then um, we're, we're just out of sync with the emphasis in the scriptures. It is always first, the priority is first about God and what he has done. Um, and, uh, and, and once we've answered that question, then um, a lot of other things uh, start to become more clear, I think. I want to pick up just before uh, I ask Jim some, some quick fire questions about baptism, uh, the incredible sense of 
family, of household, of community that's expressed in the liturgies of the Anglican Church, both from uh, the time of the Reformation to this day. The church gathers together when a baptism uh, is going to take place generally on a Sunday morning in the context of the worship service. If it's a child being baptized, the, the, the parents are there or the head of the household are there, sometimes godparents, and there are certain things, and they're very weighty questions. Do you renounce the devil and all spiritual forces of evil that rebel against God? And the household answers, I renounce them. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? I renounce them. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? I renounce them. These are very weighty questions that the household is, is committing itself to with respect to a, an infant that's about to be baptized. They're then asked, do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? They answer, I do. And do you receive the Christian faith? as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And again, they answer, I do. And many people who have come from a, a background where infants are not baptized, uh, where liturgy is not practiced, have said to me, these are incredibly weighty commitments that either an individual is making or a, a, a household and sponsors or godparents are making on behalf of the person that's being baptized. Jim, uh, no doubt that's been your experience as well. Oh, absolutely. In fact, um, one of the, th those, those promises are, are really, really important in preparing people for baptism. Um, particularly when I was in England, in the Church of England, um, we'd get families all the time who uh, were not walking closely with Christ, uh, who did not show signs of conversion, who would come and, and, and they'd want to get their babies baptized. And, um, and, and oftentimes what I would do is, I, you know, we'd sit them down and we'd say, hey, I'm so, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you've come to the church. I've, I'm excited that you are interested in baptizing your baby, so on and so forth. Hey, um, I, and then, I, you know, we'd, banter around a little bit and I'd say, hey, listen, you know, one of the things we could probably agree on is nobody likes a, um, a religious hypocrite. Don't you agree? Religious hypocrites, they're the worst, aren't they? And the other person would always say, oh, yeah, they're, they're terrible. We don't want to be a religious hypocrite. And then I'd say, well, hey, here at St. James, that was the church that I was part of, here at St. James, we don't like to encourage it. We don't want to encourage it in you. So before we uh, talk about baptizing your baby, let's talk about these promises that you're going to make because um, they're big promises. And if there is a God, then he's going to keep you accountable to them. And you don't want to find yourself before a God uh, having made promises you didn't intend to keep. So I'd say with a smile, let's go through a process of walking through these promises really, really closely along with the Apostles' Creed. And when we get to a place where we mean the same things by renouncing the devil and turning to Christ as Savior and Lord, when we're at the same place on what that actually means, then uh, we'll baptize your baby and it'll be a delight. And, um, and so, and, and so, sometimes people would be a little put off by that, Bishop. Um, they'd kind of say, Ooh, what? I just want to, I just want to set a date, get my kid done. As you say, they, they would always say that. I just want to get my kid done. Um, and uh, why why are you making us go through this process? But in any event, it it it, it led to great things because um, we get them you know reading the Gospel of Luke usually, and and um, uh, I'd often encourage them to read um, Tim Keller's The Prodigal God, and then we meet for several times, and and some of them some of them would end up 
not baptizing their child because they realized they didn't believe in Christ and they didn't intend to. Um, and then some, I, I remember one guy who had a, he, he, he was really irritated with me. He was like, what am I, what kind of hoops are you going to make me jump through? Urgh. He was quite, he was quite irritated. But then he read the gospel of Luke and he read, uh, particularly Tim, Tim Keller's, the book, the prodigal God. He came to me two weeks later, walked in my office threw the book on the f- table and said, uh, I thought I understood Jesus. I grew up with these stories in school, but now I know I don't understand what they are. And he, a little bit later, he said, I want to make those promises in the baptism service, but I'm not sure I can. And that led to a wonderful conversation about Jesus and, and an, an evangelistic opportunity. So um, those promises are a great gift, and we should use them evangelistically. Uh, yeah, and Jim, what you've shared, what an incredible story, again, about God's initiative in someone's life, uh, God taking the initiative to use circumstances uh, to bring someone to himself. But it, but, it, but it does remind us we are talking about not the baptism of every infant or every child. We are talking about the baptism of believers' children. And we referenced that phrase earlier in our conversations together. It must be the baptism of believers' children because the promise is to you and to your household. Uh, it's not simply to a child uh, on its own that cannot be brought up or would not be brought up or who has parents who will not commit to following Christ and bringing the child into the community uh, of faith. Jim, some, some quick fire um, questions. Uh, there's a word that uh, causes a little bit of confusion. Uh, it's the word regeneration. Archbishop Cramner used it in his liturgies. Uh, it's used around the church today. Some people think it's the water that saves, uh, and there's there's various arguments with regards to that. But very quickly, tell me about regeneration. Yeah, well, um, Dr. Packer actually has a great article on the Anglican Church of North America's uh, website that, that goes into some detail about this. But regeneration is, it, it's a big word that means new life. Um, and um, in the baptism liturgies, um, what we're praying for is that God, by his Holy Spirit, would unite us to Jesus Christ uh, so that um, our inward life is utterly transformed and so that we uh, love Christ uh, and share in his love and his relationship of love with the Father. And so it is a inward transformation. And the uh, the baptism liturgies are always praying for this. I like to tell my people sometime that um, the, the prayers during the baptism liturgy, uh, they'll really take an eternity for God to fully answer. Because there, we're praying that God, by His Holy Spirit, would unite us to Jesus Christ and would f- pour out all the benefits of salvation. And the benefits of salvation are a relationship, an eternal relationship with God as our Father. And therefore, it'll take eternity for that benefit that we're praying for in baptism to fully be experienced. Um, and so, it's not just the water hitting the the head of the child or the person going under the water that uh, magically makes regeneration happen. It is the work of God. And ultimately, the work of God, uh, regeneration signifies the beginning of the work of God, uh, transforming us from the inside out. But it's a work that continues uh, right the way through eternity because our union with Christ goes through eternity. 
Okay, great answer. We'll put the reference to uh, Dr. Packer's uh, article on regeneration in the show notes. Uh, Jim, some quick fire questions as we begin to wrap up. How much water is it important? Immersion, sprinkling, pouring water over? Uh, what's the deal with that? Because some people say to me, you Anglicans, even when you're baptized adults, you just don't get it right. So talk to us about that. Oh, well, um, the, uh, the, the prayer book says uh, dipping. So the, the, the prayer book likes full immersion. Um, and I, we, we try to full, fully immerse uh, when that is available. Um, however, uh, the, the thing that makes, it, that makes baptism valid is uh, it ultimately is God. It's not the amount of water. Water must be used, but um, the amount of water isn't uh, the determining thing. Yeah, and I think it's that's so important. Again, haven't we referenced already a number of times, Jim, this is God's initiative. It's about God. It's about about God's initiative in our lives and our, our response to him. And I love to point out, as pe- as you have just done, the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, references dipping people in water rather than sprinkling. Sprinkling was, in fact, set aside if the child or person being baptized was poorly or unable to be uh, immersed. Uh, so I've participated in immersion baptisms at your church at Emmanuel. Uh, I've immersed, in fact, my own children, all baptized as instance. They will, um, were immersed in baptism, I believe, in good Anglican prayer book tradition. But then again, the amount of water really isn't the issue because we can also baptize someone who's on their deathbed, uh, surrounded by machines in an intensive care unit with a small amount of water in the name of the Father and of the Son uh, and of the Holy Spirit. Jim, uh, we're doing quick fire. Uh, we've talked uh, a couple of times about godparents. What on earth are they? Oh, they are members of the church who believe and trust in Christ themselves, who who promise to uh, be allies of the parents and the discipling of the kids and praying for them. Excellent. And they have a part of making those commitments as well. Jim, what about rebaptism? That's a big question for many. I was baptized as a child, some people say, and I, I feel I need to be rebaptized. I, I've, I've come back to faith in my teens. Uh, you were baptized as a teenager. Um, uh, other people come back to faith in, 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 in later years as an adult. Do they need to be rebaptized? No, they don't. And it's, it, it is an important question because um, remember that baptism fundamentally is, uh, it, it's, it signifies God and his promise. Uh, it's God and his promise that makes the thing real. Um, and so it, very often when people want to be rebaptized, it's because um, they, they somehow have been unfaithful. Uh, and so to kind of remedy that, they want to uh, go through baptism again. But the problem with that is um, that it seems to suggest that God's promise uh, signified in the first baptism just didn't quite take or wasn't valid. But that's just not the case. God and his promise is always uh, valid and clear. We are unfaithful regularly. Uh, and the whole of the Christian life is about us uh, repenting and coming back to Christ and trusting his promise again. But God's promise remains firm, and therefore uh, baptism should be a one once for all. Absolutely. And, 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 and the best place, surely, Jim, uh, and maybe one time on one of these conversations, uh, you and I can talk about the Lord's Supper, but is not the best place to reaffirm our baptism when we come to the Lord's table, recommit our lives to Christ and come and participate in the fellowship of the church? Absolutely. I mean, the, the um, if baptism signifies 
uh, God's once for all promise, um, uniting us to Christ. And then the Lord's Supper signifies uh, that we are day by day to feed on Christ in our hearts by faith, to feed every moment on Christ's grace to us, moment by moment and breath by breath. That's how we grow as a Christian. And so the Lord has given us one sacrament that's a once for all, and he's given us another sacrament that's uh, regular. And, um, and the two signify two aspects of God's grace and how God in his great mercy uh, preserves us to eternity. Jim, it's been great talking uh, with you. Uh, Jim's going to be a co-host with me on these podcasts, Living Through the Word. Uh, We've been talking about baptism, uh, especially the baptism of believers' children. If you've got questions that you would like us to answer, perhaps in a future episode, uh, you can write those to us at questions at adlw.org. We've referenced a couple of other uh, issues that we'll put in the the show notes of the podcast. Jim, been great talking to you. Uh, If people want to know more about Emmanuel Anglican Church in New York City, uh, how do they find out information? Well, they can go to uh, emmanuelanglicannyc.com and find out about us. And uh, the best thing to do is just to show up uh, and worship with us. Um, 232 West 11th Street at 11th, 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Um, we'd love to uh, get to know you and, um, and point you to Jesus. This is Living Through the Word. And I'm Julian Dobbs. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace.